We're especially privileged to have our friends Chad and Emily Jackson with us today. Chad, I've known Chad and Emily for a long time now, been friends with them, and they serve with our denominational mission in the country of Bolivia, and they're going to be here today. Oh, I was pointing right down here. I thought you were sitting right here. I was kind of looking out of my peripheral vision, but you're not Chad and Emily, and you don't serve in Bolivia, though you are very nice people. Yes. So they're going to share with us a bit about what they're doing, what God is doing, and how we as a church can get around these guys and actually be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in Bolivia. So would you please give a very warm Journey Church welcome to Chad and Emily. Good morning. Um, For the past two years, Chad and I have been living in Bolivia. We teach at a international Christian school that was founded to give missionary kids a good education while their parents are on the field. I teach kindergarten, and Chad teaches fifth and sixth grade. Um, To give you an example of some of the things that the families do, we have students whose parents are doctors in the mountains of Bolivia. We have students whose parents are pastors and teachers. We have students whose parents actually are drilling wells in villages in Bolivia to give um, those villages clean water. So there's a whole gamut of things that they do. We have children whose parents are business owners in Bolivia. Um, And there's really no way to explain or share with you the heart of what we do in such a short time. So Chad is going to tell you a story of a little girl named Esther that was in his class last year. Um, like I said, I, or Emily said, I teach fifth grade, and one of my fifth grade students was a girl named Esther, and uh, Esther's a very unique girl because her parents are Korean, South Korean missionaries, and her dad is in charge of all of South America and parts of Central America for their South Korean mission. So he travels all over the entire continent, you know, taking care of things and supporting their South Korean missionaries. Um, And so Esther's situation is very unique because at home she speaks Korean. Um, At her parents' churches, she speaks Spanish. And then at school, she speaks English. So um, she's trilingual. And the interesting thing about Esther is, of all the people I've ever met, she's probably the most... um, Her love language, bar none, is, is touch. And she's always hugging everyone. And she's always touching people. And she has no personal space like we do. And so um, her bubble doesn't exist. Um, And uh, she's one of those kids that everybody loves, but she's driven like every teacher just crazy since she was like a kindergartner. And um, I had the pleasure of having her, and uh, um, we were a good match because I'm not quite the typical missionary teacher, I don't think. So she was always coming up to my desk and giving me hugs, and she'll ask me a question about math, and before I know it, she's, you know, hugging me. And, and one thing she used to do all the time for the whole year is she would come over and ask me a question, and then she'd kind of try and, like, slide into my lap a little bit while I'm, while I'm answering her question, and I'd have to be like, Esther, we can't do that at school. That's just not something we can do. And so I even had to make a rule pretty much just for her. It was for the whole class. Well, mostly for the girls. Guys, you don't have to worry about this. But I, I had to make a rule, you know, we can only hug at recess. So I'll give you guys a hug at recess, but that's it. We can't do it in class. By the end of the year, that was just totally out the window with Esther. I mean, there was no point. But we did stick to the no sitting in my lap rule. Um, which even, I, I just laugh because even at the end of the year, the last month of school, she was still once a week about trying to slide into my lap sometime. And it was just like, Esther, no. 
But um, the story I wanted to share real briefly is that um, at the end of the year, we had a school talent show. And um, anybody could, could join or, or do it. And so Esther really wanted to be in the talent show. And the thing is, her parents are gone all the time. Um, and so they travel a lot. They're, a lot of times they're just not around. In a lot of ways, her older sister, who's only 15, is the one that kind of raises her. So her older sister, Christina, was sitting kind of right up here in the front row. She was up on stage, and she was trying to sing this solo. And I'm not, I'm not a musical guru or anything, but I'm sure it wasn't the greatest solo. But she sang her heart out, and her sister was, you know, coaching her up from the front row. And um, what broke my heart, my heart was that uh, her parents were just too busy to be there. Um, and part of that's a cultural thing. Part of that is just um, they were involved in so many things and doing so much ministry that um, they just weren't there. And that, that broke my heart. But the cool thing was is that after she finished that solo, she ran straight off of the stage and ran right over to me. And um, she, that time I let her sit in my lap, but she jumped into my lap. And uh, I was able to just hug her and say, you know, what a great job she did and how beautiful she looked up there. And, um, and that's the kind of thing that we're able to do is we're able to minister to the kids um, of missionary children and even some businessmen who are prominent figures in the, in the country of Bolivia But by ministering to these kids, we enable um, their parents to do ministry work that um, we would would never be able to do, to to work out in the Amazon jungle and in the mountains and and all over the place. And so that's really our heart, and and, uh, that's what we're doing in Bolivia. So Um, Now is the time where we would like to just invite you to be a part of what God is doing there. we have these brochures. This is actually Esther and Chad on the back here. But if you would like to be involved in some way, please fill this out. There's a form in here. Return it to us at the end of the service. We really, really would love to have more people come on board and pray for us and be involved. If you put your email on here, we will send you updates. Um, also, too, we are raising support financially. And um, right now, I think we estimate we're at about 80 85%, so it's looking good. But we head back in two weeks. And so we really need to just get that finished, and we're excited to go back. We love to pour into those students' lives. We work with the youth group there. There are just many kids that we are excited to get back to. And so we would ask you to please just pray about it. If you have questions for us, come talk to us. Grab one of these. Um, If you just want to fill out your information, like I said, and be on our update list, we love to have people involved. And um, we just really appreciate you allowing us to come up here and do this. So thank you. My challenge to us as a church is let's just finish their support. Like they're at 80 to 85%, and so that leaves 15 to 20%, and we're a big church, and we could just knock that out. So talk to them after the service, pick up their stuff, if you would, and let's get Chad and Emily back to the mission field just as soon as we can get them there, fully supported and not having to worry about that piece of their ministry. just want to say welcome to Journey, especially if you're a guest, maybe here for the first time. We're delighted to be with you and worship God with you today. We hope today is meaningful and spiritually invigorating and challenging for you in lots of ways. Today we're going to finish this three-week message run we've been in entitled, She's a Stewardess, which is a series that's been helping us unpack our role in stewardessing, it's a word, I made it one, of the planet. Our previous two forays, the last two weekends we've been talking about this, 
we've been talking about the biblical underpinnings of why we are stewardesses of planet Earth. But today we're going to move over to the how side of the equation. How do we actually go about doing a better job of stewardessing planet Earth? And you all should have received a set of wings when you came in today. She's a stewardess wings. And so today is all about us as a church earning our stewardess wings as we take care of planet Earth, okay? So hope you'll all be able to put those on and proudly wear them after we're done today. Our big idea, we'll just launch right in, goes like this. Caring for and restoring God's creation is an act of worship unto Him. Let's pause and pray together. God, we thank you so much for who you are. You are perfect and you are beautiful and you are holy. And God, when we compare ourselves to you, we pale and compared to who you are. We're humbled by your presence in our lives moment by moment. We're especially humbled by your presence in this time, God. I want to thank you so much for what you're doing through Chad and Emily and Bolivia. God, I pray that you would expand their territory. God, that you would bless them, that their ministry would bear unbelievable eternal fruit for you as they minister to children in the classroom of that school, God. I pray that their support would come in and that they would be mobilized quickly back to the field to be about the stuff that you've called them to be about. God, I pray for us as we step into your word in this time that you would teach us, that you would shape us, God, and that we would be focused on pleasing you and actually stewarding your planet, God. Thanks for the charge and the privilege of that. We love you. This is your time. And the church said, amen. Based on our previous two conversations in this series, we believe that it's God's intended role for humanity as his managers of the planet to restore and redeem planet Earth. The Bible tells us, after all, that life began in a garden and will eventually culminate in a garden city, which means that through our acts of the restoration and our acts of the redemption of the planet, that we actually have a hand in bringing into existence the eventual dwelling place of God. Our acts of restoration, our acts of redemption of the planet, just like everything else we do in life, are as worship unto God. Now, lots of times we come into a setting like this and we think that worship is just the thing that we do as we sing and we listen to music in the minutes before someone takes this stage to preach, but that is not at all the case. Worship is actually anything and everything we do to communicate to God how awesome he is and how much we love him. And we can do that through our work and we can do that through our marriages and we can do that through our singing to him, absolutely. And we can do that by the way that we care for and by the way that we restore and redeem God's creation. And so if we're going to do that, if we're going to stewardess the planet Earth well, we're going to have to start by waking up. It's the W on your outline if you're following along. We're going to have to start by waking up. And this might be a harsh wake up for some of us. But our stewardessing of the planet starts with us waking up to the reality that we've generally earned an F when it comes to our stewardessing of planet Earth. And one of the areas that we should all be waking up to is the fact that there is a general scientific consensus that the Earth is warming up. There is general scientific consensus that the Earth is warming up. There is general scientific consensus that the warming is being caused mainly by our activity, human activity on planet Earth. 
the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, I'll call it the IPCC for short from here on out, it was set up to review the state of climate change science. Back in the year 2001, the IPCC report estimated that the probability that human activity was the cause of global warming at 65%. There was a 65% likelihood, according to the IPCC back in 2001, that global warming was caused by human activity. The most recent report from the IPCC from the year 2007, that probability increased to 90%. There is a 90% likelihood that global warming is being caused by human activity. It is happening. It would appear that we are the cause of the warming. That's a serious deal. We need to wake up to that reality. But our waking up, it isn't just confined to global warming. We need to be waking up to lots of other facts. Facts about the air we breathe, for example. Do you know that more than one in three Americans live in areas with unhealthy air? And in many areas, the air is just getting worse. Nitrogen oxides in the atmosphere, that's what forms that gross thing called smog that we hope we never have in Bozeman, right? That's increased 11% between 1970 and 1997. Sulfur dioxide emissions, that's what results in fine particulate pollution or what's commonly referred to as soot. That's increased more than 9% over 1995 levels. The air we breathe is an important thing to us, isn't it? We need to wake up to the facts about the water that we drink. Over one billion people on planet Earth lack access to safe, clean drinking water. Nearly two billion people on the planet lack safe sanitation. More than three million people, get that number in your head, three million people die every single year from avoidable water-related disease. More than 40% of the world's population lives in conditions of what they call water stress. That percentage is estimated to grow to almost 50% by the year 2025. We need to wake up to some realities about our oceans. They are major pieces of our planet. Nearly one-third of the world's fisheries have collapsed or are near collapse because of overfishing. Nearly half of the world's fisheries are being fished at their absolute maximum level. Many fish are caught before they're old enough to ever reproduce. That's a problem for obvious reasons. Do you know that sewage, this is a disgusting fact to me, sewage is the largest source of contamination by volume in the oceans. They're just pumping raw sewage into the oceans. Worldwide, approximately 250 million people become sick every year after eating contaminated fish or after bathing or swimming in contaminated coastal waters. Even in coastal waters that are deemed swimmable, 5% of adults worldwide will become sick after just a single swim in the ocean. We need to be waking up to some facts about other parts of God's creation. One in eight birds one in four mammals, are known to be in jeopardy today. One in three amphibians, almost half of all freshwater turtles, are threatened today. Over one in five of the world's plant species are threatened today. We have got to wake up to the reality that we have not taken adequate care of the planet which God has entrusted to us and asked us to steward us over. And so as people... As the church, we are charged with the lead role in caring for God's creation. We just don't get the privilege of stopping with like the wake-up phase. All right, I I know all that, and I'm just going to know that, and that's all. We don't get to stop there. 
We must move rapidly over toward the solution side of these environmental challenges, which brings us to the next place, which is the O on your outline. And it's this. We need to own the problem. We need to collectively own the problem of poor stewardessing of the planet and actually owning our role in how we got here. Because we got here somehow. This past winter, our family, we bought ourselves a new television. Our old TV, I'm really embarrassed to tell you all this, our old TV actually required that we leave it on all the time, 24 hours a day, or else the next time we wanted to turn it on, it like wouldn't come on. We'd have to like hit it with a stick so that the picture would finally come in, you know, and that's why you have a TV, so you can actually see what's on it, right? So we're just like, all right, we're going to leave it on. And so uh, after a few months of leaving our TV on 24 hours a day, I know I'm really ashamed. Please, uh, you know, don't think less of me. We're like, all right, we can do better than this. We should do better than leaving our TV on around the clock. So I got the privilege one day of marching off to the TV store, right? This is a special, almost worshipful day. I get to buy a new television. You know what I'm talking about. And I got a new TV and it was awesome. There is nothing like Deadliest Catch in HD. I absolutely love it. Well, a couple of months after we hadn't had it very long, a couple of months, I got home from work one day. I walked into the house and the TV was on and I took a glance at it and instantly my eagle eye caught this flaw on the TV screen that had never been there before. It was this little pixelated spot near the bottom of the television screen. And I was like, what in the world? So I marched right over to the TV. I was like, what is That was not there last night when I saw this television. And so I summoned Dana to the living room. Honey, what's this? And she's like, what's what? It's like that right there. She's like, I don't know. I didn't even notice it. It was like, you didn't notice? How could you not notice this little tiny spot on the TV screen? How could you not notice? I didn't even notice it. So I summoned the ch children and get in here. So I summoned the four children. They dutifully march in. I say, kids, did you cause this on the television? Like, what is this? And they're all just standing there looking at me and looking at the TV screen. And here's what I got. I got a chorus of, you've heard this before. I got a chorus of not me's, right? Like, not me. Not me, four of them, not me. We didn't have anything to do with that. Like, what, what, what? Something happened to the TV. Like, what happened to the TV? Well, we have no idea what happened to our television. Like, we absolutely have no idea what caused that little dot. The end result of that little dot today, just a couple of months later, is that that little dot has spread to a one-eighth inch line that goes from the bottom of our TV screen to the top of our brand new TV screen, one-eighth inch wide, right down the middle of the screen. It, you can't miss it. Like, you cannot miss it. It's like, just cuts everything on the screen right in half. It makes me mad every time I see it. I'm like, oh, brand new television, what is the deal? So I tell you that story. Because the same thing that I got from our four kids and even my wife, the not me, I had nothing to do with that, is the very same thing that's happening with regard to our poor stewardessing of the planet. There is a general lack of ownership of the problem that we are in. Most people walking the planet today believe that it's somebody else's fault, that it's somebody else's problem, and it's somebody else's responsibility to fix. But truth be told is that we all have responsibility for the problem, and we all have responsibility for arriving at the solution side of the equation. 
If we're ever going to fix the environmental mess that we're in today, every single person on planet Earth must own the responsibility to think differently and do things differently than we have been doing in the past. A chorus of not me's and not my problem and I didn't break it is precisely why we are where we are today. Now for some people on planet Earth, owning the problem that we're in might not look like owning the problem that we're in. Let me explain. It is my conviction, for example, that doing economic development work in Africa and doing things like drilling wells in South and Central America is actually part of helping every person on planet Earth take responsibility for arriving at the solutions to our environmental mess. For example, if I live in Africa and I am living on less than $1 a day, and I have no idea where my and my family's next meal is going to come from, How much time do you think I have to actually care about my surroundings? How much disposable time do I have to actually give a rip about planet Earth and my impact on planet Earth? I don't have any capacity to stewardess the planet. I spend all of my energy just trying to determine where my next meal is going to come from. How am I going to provide for my family? But by people like us, communities like ours, doing economic development work in places like Africa, which I hope to make economic development work a centerpiece of our work on the continent of Africa as that unfolds and is coming down the pike, we then actually help people benefit because they're living life beneath what's called the first rung of the economic ladder, see? By our helping them step onto the first rung of the economic ladder, We open up their capacity then to care for and stewardess the planet. The same thing goes for drilling wells in South and Central America. If a family spends a disproportionate amount of time hauling water over miles because it's the only source of clean drinking water in their vicinity, their capacity for caring for the planet is severely reduced because they spend nearly all of their time hauling water over miles so they don't get sick and die. But somebody goes, somebody like us goes, and we help them drill a well in their village in closer proximity to where they live, and we've helped open up discretionary time, which then makes it possible for them to care and stewardess the planet Earth. So we wake up to the problem. We own the responsibility. We step squarely into it, and we own it. And then we respond intelligently. We must respond intelligently. Look at what Mark 12.30 in the text says. This is Jesus' words. And you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and watch this, all of your mind and all of your strength, he says. See, for us who are seeking to respond intelligently, that's going to require that we engage our brains fully when it comes to stewardessing the planet. That's just part of loving God with our whole selves. Responding intelligently in order to correct our environmental woes also includes abandoning emotion-based decision-making in favor of logical and intelligent choices. There are a whole lot of knee-jerk and emotional reactions when it comes to the environment and when it comes to fixing some of the problems that we are facing as a society. But emotion-based reactions will not solve anything and can actually make things worse. The parable of the talents illustrates this perfectly. 
Follow along on the screens, Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 14. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earn five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest. I have earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest. I have earned two more. The master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. Watch this. Key in on this. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here is your money back. But the master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. See, that last servant in that parable, he based his decision on what to do with his master's money on nothing more than an emotional response. The response was fear. I'm going to operate, he said, just out of an emotional response, and my emotional response to my master is nothing but fear. But see, if we're ever going to do anything to solve the environmental problems that we're in, we're going to have to employ much more brain energy than emotional energy on these issues. Take corn ethanol, for example. On December 19, 2007, President Bush signed a bill into law that mandates a massive increase in the production of ethanol, which is used, as you all know, as a biofuel to run automobiles. Ethanol is made from corn and other foodstuffs. Literally, biofuels are fuel made from food. But see, even at current limited levels of production... Biofuel demand on planet Earth has already caused huge increases in food prices all around the globe. You've noticed when you've gone to the grocery store, haven't you? Because, see, when American farmers plant more corn in order to cash in on artificially high corn prices due to biofuel mandates, they then plant fewer wheat crops, fewer vegetable crops, fewer other food crops. That causes food prices to rise across the board. We use corn to feed chickens and cattle, thus the price of poultry and beef and milk have risen dramatically and will continue to rise. Now, the ideology behind biofuel production, it sounds smart. It sounds wholesome. It's sort of a green health food store way of producing energy, producing fuel that we drive our cars using. But in reality... It's simply an emotion-based response that has serious downstream consequences. It feels good. Let's grow our fuel instead of drilling it out of the ground. But the downstream consequences are very serious. 
Biofuel production dramatically increases the cost of fuel, which of course most impacts who? The world's poor. When we burn corn in our gas tanks, what happens to the price of corn tortillas in Mexico, where corn is a staple food? They increase dramatically, and pretty soon we've priced poor Mexicans right out of their staple food in their market. Or watch this one. Another very common emotion-based response to the environmental challenges that we're facing is to run right out and buy a Toyota Prius, right? Or some other hybrid car. But here's the deal. And if you have a Prius, I'm not picking on you. I just want to unpack this from an intelligent perspective. Manufacturing a Toyota Prius consumes 113 million BTUs. That's a measurement of energy. You know that. A single gallon of gasoline contains about 113,000 BTUs, which means that the supposed green wonder Toyota Prius guzzles the equivalent of 1,000 gallons of gasoline before it ever clocks its first mile on the roadways. Watch this, though. A used car starts with a significant advantage because the first owner has already paid off its carbon debt, if you want to think about it like that. You go out, and instead of buying a Toyota Prius, you buy a 10-year-old Toyota Tercel. They get about 35 miles to a gallon, and a new Prius will have to drive 100,000 miles to catch up. See, even better yet, buy yourself a three-cylinder, 49-horsepower, 1994 Geo Metro XFI, one of the most fuel-efficient cars ever built. It gets the same average gas mileage as a 2008 Toyota Prius, which means that the brand-new hybrid would never close the carbon gap. Now, you're right. The Geo has no AC, doesn't have any airbags, but nobody ever said that saving the planet would be comfortable or even safe, for that matter. We must respond intelligently. We must fully engage our brains on these issues. We can't just react in knee-jerk fashion to what it feels like we should do. See, the S on your outline is simplify, because this is frankly where much of this lands. Simplify. The real reason that the Berlin Wall came down is because the capitalistic system pioneered by America, we simply outproduced the communistic system. While the shelves of shops in communist bloc nations were bare, the shelves of our stores, they were packed with an array of stuff that defies the imagination. Just take a trip to Walmart and you'll see it. Dollar for dollar, we are able to buy more things and make more things for more of our people than any other society on planet Earth. What do they call us, after all? We are consumers. We are consumers. Just listen to the news. And they repeatedly, in any newscast, just say, consumers, consumers, consumers. We are a consumer society. That's our tag. And we've got the goods, and we've got the dispositions to buy them that prove we're consumers. We can outproduce. We can outsell. We can outbuy anybody, anytime, anywhere. But in order to keep this incredibly successful system working, there is something very important that we Americans must do, what we have to do, and that is buy. 
We have to buy the stuff that our system produces. We have to keep on buying the stuff that our system produces. The megatons of stuff that flow out of factories annually must be purchased and used up fast and furiously. If not, well, then the factories will close, workers will become unemployed, and everything in our system will grind to a screeching halt. Without any doubt, the continued success of our way of life requires that we Americans continue to be nothing but unrestrained consumers. But there is a major problem with this. And it's this, is that those of us who have all the money to buy all of the stuff that our factories produce already have everything we need. Now, I didn't say everything that we want. We have everything that we need. There is no question about it. We have become a people whose needs are way more than gratified. Our essential hungers are deeply satiated already. But see, if people like you and me, whose needs are going to be, have already been met, are going to keep America going, we have to buy what we don't need. And we have to buy what we don't need in larger and larger and larger quantities. And as absurd as all of that seems, the survival of our very way of life depends upon that. Just think about last Christmas, for example. Your biggest problem, I promise you, was probably not trying to figure out where you would get enough money to buy all of the presents for family members and friends. Instead, it was probably trying to figure out what to buy for people who already have everything they need. And the answer to that problem should have been very simple. What do you buy for people who have everything? Nothing. You don't buy anything. But none of us had the guts to do that, did we? Instead, we rushed up and down store aisles, we browsed e-tail websites, like having anxiety attacks. With panic-stricken fear in our eyes, we searched. We even prayed that somebody somewhere had invented some new thing that nobody needs so that we could buy them for people who already have everything. That is not an absurd description of a reasonable world. That is a rational description of an absurd world, frankly. But if any of us ever hope to make a dent in the environmental mess that we've made, one of the most fundamental things that we can do is simplify our way of living. Now, I'm not talking about returning to caveman days, okay? I'm talking about a simplified way of life and simplified patterns of buying and consumption. Part of the myth that drives our overconsumption as Americans is that all of that extra stuff that we're tempted to buy will somehow make our lives better and our souls happier. But that is an environmentally and spiritually costly myth, see. One of the ways that we can better steward the planet is to simply use less of it to simply use less of it. What if we just said no to some buying opportunities that we have? Just because we can buy something doesn't mean that we necessarily should buy it. Because, see, every purchase we make has an environmental cost to it. When we can't say no to a buying opportunity, is there then a way for us to ask the question, can I reduce my rate of consumption of that? For example, what if this coming week, instead of using three-quarters of a tank of gas, we used half a tank of gas? It's thinking along those lines. What about reusing stuff? Oftentimes, throwing stuff away is just flat a waste. I lost my last Fiji water bottle that I had. I had it for several months. This is not a new bottle every single week. I have 
I'll have this for months and months. I had the last one for like six months. I have no idea. One day it was just gone. I refill it every single day, several times a day. I could throw it away and buy a new one every day, but what, what a waste. Like there's nothing wrong with it when I throw it away. It's just I say, I don't need it. I don't want it anymore. What if we reused stuff? Here's a question. Why do we all own our own lawnmowers? Right? Well, you're like, well, because I have a lawn and I need to mow it. Last week, I used my $550 Honda lawnmower for 16 minutes. That's how long it takes me to mow my yard. About eight minutes in the front, eight minutes in the back, and I'm done. I used my $550 Honda lawnmower for 16 minutes once per week. Right now, it's sitting in my backyard, absolutely useless until about the middle of this coming week. I will start it up and I will use it for 16 more minutes. There's something a bit insane about that, in my opinion. What if, before I had bought that new Honda lawnmower, I would have gone to one of my neighbors, for example. All of my neighbors have lawnmowers, by the way. They use them for about 16 minutes. We all have similarly sized lots. And I went to them, and I said, they use theirs for 16 minutes every single week, right? And I said, hey, I was going to buy a new lawnmower. I need a new one. But what if instead of doing that, I give you a couple of hundred bucks, and I buy a share in your lawnmower? I would have picked the guy with the best one, and I'd buy a share of the best lawnmower of any of my neighbors. I'd have saved 350 bucks, and we would have taken a step toward maximizing the productivity of one lawnmower. We then use one lawnmower 32 minutes a week, right? And there's room for plenty of other shares in that same lawnmower. Why does he have to have one and I have to have one? Now that stuff, you think about it, and it sounds quite odd to us, doesn't it? Because we're so conditioned as a culture to having our own everything and just consuming our way to a solution. But stewardessing the resources of the planet means that we will actually ask questions about how we can use less and buy less and think about consumption differently and simplify our patterns of living. Because see, the earth and its resources are not just there for the taking. They are left to our care, and we want to do the very best job possible with what God's entrusted to our care. We simplify. And if all of that sounds like hard work, it's because it is. It's because it is. Caring for and restoring God's creation is just flat hard work, and God never tries to hide that truth from us. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. And to the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All of your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. That is not a rosy picture. By the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Now, I know that most of us sitting in this room do not make our living by farming, but that does not mean that we who aren't farmers are exempt from the hard work and toil of the earth. 
because we who follow Jesus are the lead stewardesses of the planet, we should be actually working the hardest to make whatever corners of the planet we have responsibility for the most beautiful. We should be leading the charge on recycling. We should be leading the charge on picking up litter. Our yards should be the best kept yards in town. And that takes work. You all know this. It takes hard work. As a church, when we have the privilege of locating ourselves out on that piece of property and developing that ministry campus, it should be among the best kept and beautiful places in town. And that will take hard work. Even living a more simple life takes hard work. I was out at some friend's place just last weekend. I was helping them throw hay bales and get them stacked up for the winter. And as I looked around at their place, it was absolutely beautiful. It was just stunning. And I had this thought that this picture right here of this place that I was standing on is exactly what the Lord has in mind for our care, our stewardessing of planet Earth. The place was gorgeous. It was well-kept and clean and neat, better than any park you would ever go to. But that takes hard work. They're diligently pressing in every single day to make it like that and to keep it like that. We were there that night until after 10 p.m. that night doing what we could do that day to make, take the best care of the place possible. We got to all be willing to do the hard work that's required to be the best stewardesses we can be of our part of the planet that we're entrusted with. And so we work hard and we also invest. Our stewardship of the planet will require an investment on our part in money, in time, and in effort. In the book of 2 Samuel in the Bible, King David sins by taking a census of the people of Israel and Judah. David's sin one one day begins to bother him. It creeps into his conscience. And so he goes to God to clear the slate and seek God's forgiveness for his sin. As a result of David's sin, a terrible plague came on the people of Israel. It kills off some 70,000 people. God then sends David to build an altar on this certain threshing floor where they would have threshed wheat. So David goes, and we pick up the story in 2 Samuel 24, starting in verse 19. You can follow along. So David went up to do what the Lord had commanded him. When that man who's Name is very difficult to pronounce, so I'm not going to try. Saw the king and his men coming toward him. He came and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Why have you come, my lord, the king, he asked. David replied, I have come to buy your threshing floor and to build an altar to the Lord there so he will stop the plague. Take it, my lord, the king, and use it as you wish, he said to David. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and you can use the threshing boards and ox yokes for wood to build a fire on the altar. I will give it all to you, your majesty, and may the Lord your God accept your sacrifice. But the king replied to him, No, I insist on buying it, for I will not present burnt offerings to the Lord my God that have cost me nothing. So David paid him 50 pieces of silver for the threshing floor and the oxen. And you're going, what in the world does that have to do with the stewardessing of the planet? Kill the oxen, right? No. It's this. David understood the need to invest a portion of his personal financial empire in the honor and in the worship of God. Otherwise, he knew that his worship would have been cheap and his service to God would have been meaningless. The very same thing goes for our investment in the stewardessing of the planet. 
Our care for the planet, see, it isn't just about making things look nice for the next cover of Better Homes and Gardens magazine. Rather, our care for the planet is a responsibility entrusted to us by God himself, and we carry out that responsibility as an act of worship unto him. And get this, worship is costly. Worship is costly. Worship requires of us an investment, an investment of time, an investment of money, an investment of effort. We invest. And then the last point on your notes page, we'll conclude here today. It's the word pray. It's the word pray. And I want you to know, I am all for prayer, but I did not want to put prayer as the last point in this message about getting our act together with regard to the stewardessing of the planet. Not because I'm against prayer, but I didn't want to put prayer on here as the last point because I did not want us as a community saying things like, well, yeah, I'm praying about what to do to be a better stewardess of the planet and never moving off of that place and just saying, God hasn't told me to do anything differently. I'm just praying about it. See, I didn't want us to do that as a community. But some people talked me into it, and I'm glad they did. But I want to frame our prayer this way. Much of the conversation regarding our present environmental mess is based in fear, isn't it? You've heard it all. Much of the conversation around our environmental mess is based in worry and fear about like oceans rising and like drowning the planet, right? Pretty soon, Bozeman, Montana is going to be beachfront property because the globe is warming and icebergs are melting, right? There's worry and fear about food shortages because of climate change. We're all going to starve because we're not going to be able to grow anything anymore. There's worry and fear about the carrying capacity of the planet and our surpassing the magic number of people that the earth can sustain. Even the magic number of people that the earth can hold without like the weight of all of the people on the planet tipping the earth off of its axis, out of rotation and spinning us off. I, you've heard this right? But see, the truth be told, God never intended for us to live lives of worry and lives of fear about anything. God never intended for us to live lives of worry and fear about anything, not even the plight of the planet. Look at Philippians 4, 6, and 7, very familiar text. Don't worry about anything. That's a command. Don't worry about anything. Instead, move to the solution side, Paul says. Pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So don't be a person who is marked by worry and fear, please. Instead, be a person whose life is marked by prayer, especially prayer for matters related to the planet. Because see, none of what's going on on planet Earth is a surprise to God. It is not a news flash to him that the planet is warming. He knew it already. He knows and he cares and God wants to work and God wants to reassure us that he has a plan and the primary way that he works out his plan and that he works is through prayer. And so would you pray, please, on this? I invite you to set your things aside and let's do that very thing right now. 
I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads and speak to the Lord about what it is that you're thinking about. Just tell God what's on your heart and your mind. You can do that now. And I'd ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. And I just invite you to think on and do any business you might need to do with God on matters of caring for and restoring God's creation as worship unto him. I invite you to transact any business whatsoever that you need to do with God. Don't leave this room today without doing business with him, please. Maybe there's things in this time that you need to commit to the Lord regarding your role in better stewardessing the planet. How are you going to be about that? What are you going to do differently today because of what you know? I invite you to make some concrete decisions with God in this time. Drive some stakes into the ground. And maybe as you sit in this room today and you reflect on God in these moments, you know that you don't yet have your own relationship with Him, our God, our Creator. I want you to know it doesn't have to stay that way. God doesn't even want it to be that way. The truth is that God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to sacrifice his life on the cross for you, to be your savior, to be the rescuer of your soul. And you can step into a relationship with him today by putting your faith and trust in him. You can begin a friendship with God today. You can come home to God, maybe for the first time in your whole life right now. And if that's you, if that's the decision of your heart today, I'd invite you to express that to God. You can do it right where you're sitting by praying along with me a prayer that goes like this. God, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to make a way for me to have a relationship with you. I know that I've sinned. I know that my sin has separated me from you, God. And today I realize, God, that you are holy and that Jesus died on the cross to make a way for me to live with you. Please forgive me by Christ's sacrifice. Please send Jesus to live inside of me. God, I want you to be my friend. I want you to change me. God, I need you to clean my life up. And starting today, God, I make you the boss of my life. And that decision to give your life to God is the biggest decision of your whole life. Nothing matters more. Nothing carries more weight. Nothing's a bigger deal. And it's such a big deal that around here we actually ask people to tell us when they made that decision. And I'm going to ask you to do that with me now, privately. Nobody's looking around but me. If you prayed with me just then to give your life to Jesus Christ, would you be so bold as to just slip your hand up and make eye contact with me and say, yes. I stepped into a relationship with God today. I came home to God for the first time in my life. God, it's no small thing to us that you entrusted the care of your planet to our care. It's really stunning and humbling 
God, by ourselves, we're devoid of the wisdom that it takes to get that done and get it done well. Our track record proves that. And so I pray that you would help us stewardess your planet well. I pray that you would forgive us for our negligence. That you would forgive us for not stewarding well, for not paying attention well, for not doing all we can to take the best care of this planet possible. God, I pray that you would imbue us with creativity and courage to do things differently, to live differently, to live simply. We're doing it for you. We're doing it as an act of worship to you. It isn't just about saving the planet. It's about worshiping you, ordering our lives around you. Help us do that, please, God. We need you. We desperately need you.